every now and then, you, there are some texts as a preacher that are so important. You spend a lot of time thinking, praying, studying, meditating upon, and then preparing to preach them because you know that you are, uh, you're preaching and what you're praying for is, is you're praying that God would use whatever that text is that you are in the middle of walking through. You're praying that God would use that, that particular text in that particular moment in that particular time in life of the church that you're in to bring about some particular spiritual good. For me personally, this feels like one of those texts at one of those moments in the life of our church, and I pray that there would be some spiritual good. Um, I've been just really encouraged and edified and uh, strengthened and overjoyed at studying this text the last couple of weeks. And so uh, this is what we're going to do. So we're, we're going to dive into it, but I want to do so in a way that we don't miss what's happening as we're looking at it, as we're trying to study it. So I, I don't want us to miss the forest for all of the trees that are in it, and I want you to understand kind of what's happening in the text. So this is what we normally do as a church. We normally read a text, and then we work through it kind of bit by bit, verse by verse, and then we string together what's happening so you can kind of understand the flow and the rhythm of it, and then we make some applications. It's kind of a normal Christian sermon, kind of follows that trajectory. Uh, today, though, I'm going to switch around the normal rhythm. So I'm going to begin by giving you the overarching flow, aim, and heart of the text for the first half of the sermon. Then we're going to walk quickly through the text together, and then I'm going to wrap it up with some application, all with the aim that we might understand the really big picture of what this text is intended to do in our hearts as we read it as God's people. Um, so that's where we're going. So I want to acknowledge right up front, this is going to feel backwards. The sermon is going to feel backwards. You're going to say, this feels backwards. I'm going to, I'm going to say some things, and you're going to say, prove it in the text, and I'm going to get there, uh, but you have to wait with me, all right? Deal? Don't yell at me? Deal? All right, deal. Uh, so uh, let's dive in. We've got a lot to cover, and I'm going to talk really fast today. I normally talk fast. I'm going to talk faster today. So there's four things that I want us to remember uh, as we're going to dive in. Number one, I want us to remember the audience to whom Jesus is speaking. We saw it in verse 31, and the whole dialogue, all of this stuff, verse 31 all the way to 59, this is between Jesus and those who had believed in him. This ties, actually, verse 31 right back to verse 30, which we discussed two weeks ago. And we ended that sermon by seeing there were many Jews who believed upon Jesus. Remember, there are many of them. And our entire section of Scripture today is spoken between Jesus and this many who had believed in him. Now, what did they believe in him? Well, we remember it was during the Feast of Booths, one of those three really great feasts that marked the Jewish calendar every year, where the Jews remembered, specifically, how God brought them out of slavery. Do you remember? So, so he brought them out of slavery, from Egypt, remember they passed through the Red Sea Road, and then what did God lead them by at night? A pillar of fire, nicely done. So to celebrate this feast, they would light these huge lamps in the middle of the temple, and people would gather, and they would dance and sing and celebrate God's past acts of redemption, and they would look forward to the promises of God given through his word that he would send a Messiah through the lineage of David to usher in the very kingdom of God, a kingdom marked by light where there is darkness no more. And it was here at this feast where Jesus stands up and proclaims, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me, Jesus said, will not walk in darkness, but will have or hold or possess the light of life. It will be their possession. Jesus then went on to say that the Father had sent him for this express purpose, that if they did not believe upon him, if they did not believe upon him and follow him, then they would die in their sins. In this, Jesus used a vocabulary from Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, referencing these I am statements uh, that God makes about himself, statements that would have been blasphemy for anyone else to make other than God. But Jesus, when he takes this beautiful phrase to his lips, the people don't understand exactly what he is saying. 
They, they might have simply assumed he's professing to be the Messiah, the suffering servant that God promised would come and usher in his kingdom. But either way, Jesus is emphatic that the reason why he came is that they would not die in their sin and rather remain in darkness any longer. They would walk in the light. So we saw in verse 30, Jesus is saying these things. Many people believed in him. So that's a lot of what they believed on him. So we ended that sermon that week calling you and I to see the claims of Jesus and to believe upon him as well. But in a better way because we know what they don't know. We know what Jesus really was claiming that he was God in the flesh with them. So, that rehearsed that because I want you to know it's the same audience in today's passage. It is to the ones who had believed in him. Verses 31 to 59, the entire dialogue. I say that because the first time I read this through, I didn't realize that. I thought maybe Jesus is beginning to talk to the Pharisees and the Sadducees again. Maybe Jesus is talking to somebody else then. What's the audience here? But the, the one clear audience all the way through, 31 to 59, is those who had believed in him, which makes the things that he says shocking. So that's the primary audience. Second, I want you to understand the structure of today's text. Um, this is going to help kind of shape the second half of the sermon. And what we're going to see is this whole thing happens with these seven dialogues, these seven back and forths between Jesus and this crowd who had believed upon him. So Jesus is going to make a statement, and then they are going to respond with a question or make an accusation about him in response. Thirdly, I want you to be keenly aware of the vocabulary used in today's text. Um, specifically, uh, three things in that, in the vocabulary. First, you're going to see seven conditional statements being used in today's text. Verses 31, 39, 42, 46, 51, 54, and 55. Now, if it's been a while since you've been in English class, a conditional statement is an if-then statement. So if I go to the store, then I will get ice cream. You ever said that to one of your kids and showed up and they said, where's the ice cream? I, and you said, I, I said, if I go to the store, then I will get ice cream. I did not go to the store. And they're like, dad. Right, so uh, that's a conditional statement. There's seven of those. It's used a lot. Um, and, and even in our text, you won't see the word then used, but it is there. And that'll be helpful for us to know. We can insert the word then in our minds to make sure we know and track what's happening. Secondly, we're going to see the same words used multiple times throughout the passage. We're going to, for example, see the phrase, my word, used in verses 31, 37, 43, 51, and 55, and then used in the plural in verse 47, referring to the sum total of all of Jesus's teaching. It's this is kind of overarching term referring to everything that Jesus had taught, kind of like we see in the Great Commission, right, where we are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded, all of Jesus' words. So too here we will see this word used to encapsulate all of Jesus' teaching. In reality, all of God's word, all of the Bible. Thirdly, in our passage, we will also see Jesus use common vocabulary to give very different meanings to the words. For example, he's going to talk about freedom and slavery, but he's going to radically redefine what he means by slavery and freedom, and people are going to be really confused. He's also, as we just read through a moment ago, you saw he does the same thing with death and life. Right? He's like, you're not going to die. And they're like, what do you mean you're not going to die? That doesn't make any sense. He's revisioning entirely different new definition of what does it mean to be alive and what does it mean to see death. So if we don't understand that, we're going to read Jesus' words and we're going to be real confused. So he's going to redefine all these different categories. Um, and so uh, there we see uh, back the audience then the structure, some vocabulary. And then fourthly, the last major note is the aim or desire of the intention of the text. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, this is a conversation between Jesus and those who had believed upon him. But we also quickly notice through walking through this conversation, it seems much more like, as I mentioned a moment ago, the one that Jesus would have with the Pharisees rather than with his disciples, right? I mean, Jesus says that these who believed in him are slaves of sin. Their father is the devil. It's typically not like you show up at a Bible study and someone would just say that to you, 
Like, you're enslaved by sin and a child of the devil. You're like, what? Uh, this seems... It seems strange. Usually we describe this kind of vocabulary, speaking of Jesus, with the religious ruling class, Pharisees, Sadducees. But here these strong words are used to those who had believed in Jesus, those who had heard him speaking in the temple, those who had believed in him. It's strange. And I mention this because if we don't understand the primary audience and the tone of the text, we're going to be in danger of missing the heart of the text and how it's meant in God's providence to begin working in our own lives as we read it and study through it. See, we are used to two kind of binaries. This is what we're used to. We are used to there is a Christian who is a disciple and a non-Christian who is not a disciple, not a follower of Jesus. This is typically what we're used to. But what we see in today's passage is that we're reminded that there is a third category of person that usually slips our minds, and it's that of the false disciple. The one who seems to be a disciple of Jesus for a season, but then turns back from following him altogether. Now, this isn't a brand new category in the Gospel of John. This isn't the first time we've talked about this in the Gospel of John. We, we first saw this back in John 2. Do you remember? There were those mighty miracles of Jesus and, and people who believed on him. They believed he was a miracle worker sent from God. But strangely, John tells us that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. And then we discussed how Jesus knew that their faith was spickle, uh, fickle. It was spurious. It was false. We saw this uh, next week in our study of John chapter 3. Remember with Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he says, Jesus, I know that you are a teacher come from God because nobody could do the signs that you're doing unless God was with him. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. Basically, you don't have eyes to see and you're not guaranteed to come into the kingdom unless a miracle of God happens in your heart. And Jesus just cut right to the matter with Nicodemus. Nick needed to know he was a desperate sinner before God who couldn't trust in his pedigree as a, uh, as a Jew, nor in his religious status as a Pharisee, nor his political standing as a ruler. Rather, the only way he could be born again is by looking to Jesus, trusting in him alone, and that Jesus had been sent by the Father to be looked on by faith. So that was the only way to see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus had believed certain things to be true about Jesus, but he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Not yet. But he might be labeled as a false disciple, but not a true one. You're like, well, maybe, maybe not. But the idea then builds in the Gospel of John, leading us to John chapter 6, where we see the idea of false disciples come blazing to the forefront of the scene. As there is an entire crowd who's come to believe upon Jesus, those who would even be called disciples in John chapter 6, verse 66. And we saw them turn and leave Jesus because his word, his teaching was too difficult. They could not bear it. In response to this, do you remember Jesus turns around and he looks at the 12 disciples and he asks to if they want to leave. And then Peter looks at Jesus and he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else would he go? Jesus has the words of eternal life leading to eternal life. Does what we kind of see unfolds, we've been working through and seeing this in the Gospel of John, we see it again here today. What we've seen is there's, there's a difference between true and false disciples. That true disciples can bear the words of Jesus, they receive them, and they hold on to them, leading them from death to eternal life. So while usually we think about kind of in binary terms, like this person is a disciple of Jesus, they're a Christian, this person is not a Christian, not a disciple of Jesus, we do have uh, unfurl in this book that there's a third category of person underneath that non-Christian one. There is the one who claims to be a disciple of Jesus, but their faith their faith ends up being spurious or fickle. They, they start out well, they believe upon Jesus, they follow him for a bit, but then something happens and they stop following him. Right? The cares of this world, the pressures of persecution, the desires of money, or as we see in our text, the hatred for Jesus' own words about his true identity 
causes them to recoil and want to destroy Jesus, not submit to him. And I mention that because this is something that we know to be true, that there's this idea of false disciple if we've been a part of a Christian church for any amount of time. There, there, are, those, there are those who will profess faith in Jesus but walk away from Jesus altogether. And oftentimes, this third category of a false disciple often hits way too close to home, right? Like, we all know people like this, right? Like, for, for some of us, it's, it's friends or family members. For others of us, it's spouses or children, parents or siblings. Those who once seemed so genuinely to love Jesus and his word, and yet, as time went on, they ended up rejecting God's word altogether and turning away from Jesus. Once they would have said, I am a disciple of Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, they would have been front row, hands raised, praising Jesus alongside of you, and, and yet they get to a point where they get so hardened by sin to the point where now they would claim to be atheists or agnostics. Sadder yet are those who who want to keep the term disciple or Christian, but they live without any obedience that it requires to actually be a follower of Jesus. They don't abide in God's word. They hate Jesus' word, but they like the label. So they start picking apart the Bible, deciding for themselves which part are God's words and which ones aren't, leading them on a path of remaking Jesus in their own image, believing that Jesus must celebrate what they celebrate and hate what they hate. It's often what we would call historically liberal Christians, or more commonly today, progressive Christians. But before we start falsely believing the problem is somewhere out there in the world around us, but not in here, this is the safe place, what we need to realize is this desire to rebel against Jesus' words is inside every single one of us. This is not a them problem out there or people on social media you can point to, those guys, those who deconstructed, or those people over there. Rather, this is a problem in here, in every single one of our hearts. This desire to rebel against Jesus' word, his teaching is now, because of the fall, it's the natural disposition of every single one of our hearts, my heart and your heart. Like, like, like if you haven't read through the Bible sometime recently and read something that offended you, you're not reading it very well. Like the Bible's an equal opportunity offender. It offends all people in all times and all places. And so... So keep reading, because uh, there's, there's a lot in there that's just offensive. And, and naturally, your heart just goes, mm, I don't like that. So we ought to be warned as we're reading a passage and considering our own lives, really as we're trying to think through, are we truly a disciple of Jesus or not? This is an important conversation because as a church, as we walk this path together, if Jesus tarries for the next couple of decades... And God gives grace and I for you and I to continue to be part of a local church together. What we will see unfold is that there will be people among us, some that we baptize, some that we send out as church planters, some who are members, some who are our own children, even, even some who are pastors of our church who will leave the faith altogether because Jesus' word will find no place in them. There will be those who at one time believed that they loved Jesus and were truly his disciples, but as time goes on, when confronted with the very words of God through the Bible, Jesus' words will find no place in them. They will end up despising God's word, wanting nothing to do with it. His words that once were so sweet to them will become sour. 
they won't be able to bear them or to remain any longer. So this is why I think this text is so shocking, and I think it's the central aim of what this text is meant to do in my own heart and in yours. We ought to be, as we're reading the words of Jesus, we who claim, if you claim to believe in Jesus, as you're reading through, as we're studying through, we ought to examine our own hearts to really see if we truly are his disciples. This is a good and a right thing to consider because our hearts are deceitful above all else. And we have a tendency to easily convince ourselves, no, I really am a Christian, even when we refuse to submit to God's word. So we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, for example, that we ought to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Paul wrote to the Ephesian elders, the Ephesian elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. This is what he wrote them in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, speaking to the pastors, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's the question I want us to be asking ourselves as we prepare to dive into this text is, am I truly a disciple of Jesus? And then secondly, how can I be sure? So my sermon today, I have two lofty prayers that are impossible for me to do without the Holy Spirit at work in your lives. And so before we start walking through the text, here's what I'm asking God to do. Firstly, I'm praying today that some of you would be convinced that you're not a Christian. I'm praying God would convince some of you you're not a Christian. Now, that might seem backwards to what a preacher's supposed to do on a Sunday. You know what I mean? That seems backwards. But, but one of the great lies of Satan is to convince you and I that we are already disciples of Jesus, meaning the gospel isn't for us, it's for others, other people who really need it. And with these words from Jesus' lips being given to this crowd, who believes in him, the heart of this passage is graciously to open our eyes to the reality that some of you who claim ardently to be Christians are not. Because Jesus' words find no place in you. You're too full of other things. You don't see that you even have a need to be saved. Friends, some of you are convinced that you are a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe you started attending church gatherings throughout the week. Others because you had an emotional response to a sermon and prayed a prayer with someone afterwards. But friends, that is not the litmus test of whether you are a Christian, Jesus says. Rather, he says, if you remain, persist in, abide in his word, if you don't twist it, malign it, change it to suit your own passions and desires, but remain in it. That's what we ought to be asking ourselves is what do we do with Jesus' word? And if God worked a miracle in your heart, which I'm praying he does, you'd see that your life isn't marked by abiding in Jesus' words, but in rebelling against Jesus' words. Not in obeying the Father, but in disobeying the Father. There are internal habits and sins that grip your affections and desires, leading you to twist Jesus' words or to ignore them altogether all to keep you as slaves of sin and to keep you from treasuring Jesus. Some of you in the last couple of months have had this great experience and you know what I'm talking about. Even a year ago, you would have walked in here and said, I'm a Christian. And then you started walking through the Bible and reading through it. And then you read something and you were like, I don't think I am a Christian. What? I thought my whole life I was. And yet, Yet there was never any repentance of sin, never any love of Jesus, never treasuring of the gospel. And, and yet now, looking at you, everything is drastically different in your life. You've been given eyes to see that you weren't a Christian all along, but rather 
Now you've been born, born again from above, and it's like a light went on, and you can see for the first time. Now imperfectly, but strivingly, you're, you're wanting to know Jesus' words and conform your life to it. You want to obey him and treasure him and his word, and you're a different person altogether. Some of you have been set free this past year from slavery of sin, and it's beautiful. And that's my prayer for those who today believe you are a Christian, but you refuse to remain in Jesus' words. I've been praying that Jesus would work in your life a miracle today, that the Spirit would convince you of this fact, that he'd convict you of your sin and rebellion against God and convince you of the truth of Jesus, and that a miracle of God would happen, that you'd actually become a Christian today. So it's my first lofty prayer that God would convince some of you that you're not a Christian so that you might become a Christian, which brings me to my second lofty prayer, and it's that some of you would be convinced that you are Christians. Now, you probably saw that one coming. But for real, I mean, I mean, some of you are teetering. Like, if you were honest, some of you are, and some of you are teetering internally, externally. You're wondering that question, am, am I genuinely a Christian? How can I know? And, and, and the reasons could be many, but two mean reasons I typically see sin from two places. Some of you, it's because you see persistent sin in your life. There are some areas that you hate, you, that you despise, things that cling to you, things that you, that you hate, and you're so burdened by persistent sin in your life, and then you have seasons of victory and then seasons of failure. So you think, man, if I was really a Christian, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't struggle with this sin. I must not have God as my father. That others of you might struggle with assurance of your salvation because you've known false disciples. They, they might be friends, classmates, spouses, family members, pastors. Those who once claimed to believe upon Jesus just like you, but then they walked away. And you know that you're not any better than any of them. So you rationally wonder, how can I have assurance in my salvation when other people thought they had assurance in their salvation and yet they walked away? And if you're being brutally honest, this anxiety paralyzes some of you, right? It's like, it's like this, this thing steals all comfort available to you through the gospel. So my prayer is that today, that through the preaching of Jesus, that the preached word would have this strange and profound impact on your life. You might see the test that Jesus lays out in this text for helping discern the difference between true and false disciples, and the Spirit might confirm in your heart that though you once were blind, you once were blinded by Satan and doing his will, that it was even then when you were his enemy, when Jesus sought you and bought you of his redeeming blood and sealed you by sending the Spirit to indwell you, giving internal witness to your soul that God the Father is now your Father, that once, sister, you were not his, but now you're a part of his covenant community, that once, brother, you had no hope, but now you do. And my prayer is that God would work a miracle in your heart, giving you this peculiar confidence in your salvation that you really do belong to him and that you'd see that, you're, that your faithful endurance doesn't come by this white-knuckled determination to remain and abide in Jesus. Rather, your perseverance to the end depends on the spirit at work in you because he's, given, he's been given to you to persevere you to the end, accomplishing the very purpose and will of God the Father who bought you at the price of Jesus' blood spilled out in your place. And it was God who brought you into his family by grace according to his will. So he will keep you and persevere you because you're his. So that's my aim. Now, that's over half of our sermon which would, I think, in this moment, make that the absolute longest introduction we've ever had. Probably longer than Matt Wood Masses ever have been. Probably, probably. 
But it is. It's my, it's, my, it's my prayer that God would do this twin work in us, that God the Spirit might convince us through the folly of preaching some of you aren't Christians and some of you are. And so let's pray and then we'll dive into our text with these prayers. So Father, as we come into your word, I pray that you would do your work in our lives, that you would graciously work in our hearts to distinguish the posers from the possessors, that those who are posers, those who are not true disciples of Jesus might be convicted of their sin and convinced of their own need for the gospel and might come to believe upon you. And I pray that those who are possessors might be comforted by your word. Father, move in our midst by your spirit and give life today. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what we're gonna do with our second half of our sermon is we're gonna look at these seven back and forths. Now, um, I'm gonna show you all, all seven of them right away. So there's all seven of the back and forths. And uh, what we see here is uh, how Jesus kind of engages in conversation with this crowd. They might know who, truly who he is as God in the flesh, the great I am who's come to seek and to save the lost. They will show by their actions whether they can bear to remain in his word or not. So the very first conversation, as we know from verses uh, 31 to 33, is where Jesus lays out this test. And he says, if they would remain or abide in his word, that his abiding word would have two effects in their lives. We see this in verses 31 to 32. Firstly, they would know the truth. And then secondly, the truth would set them free. Now, interestingly enough, their response is not then to ask Jesus, what is your word so that we can abide in it? You might assume that would be it. If Jesus says, hey, the real litmus test, if you're truly my disciple, is if you remain in my word. You might think, great, what's your word? Let me, what is your word? I'll remain in it. That's what you'd think. That's not, that's not where they go. Uh, rather, uh, the only thing they pick up on is the very tail end of what Jesus said and and, and all about the truth setting them free. That's their that's the main question, right? So, and, and it comes down to if Jesus is offering freedom, then this necessitates they're currently enslaved and they need to be free. So they answer him, we are offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, if you're reading through this and you know the Bible, this seems like a silly statement, doesn't it? Like who has Israel not been enslaved by? Like everybody, Babylonians, Assyrians, Persians. Read the book of Judges over and over. Enslavement constantly. Not only that, they're under Roman occupation in this moment. They're hoping that the Messiah would come and liberate them from slavery and set up the kingdom of God and all of God's enemies would come to their feet. So you might read this and you think, are they blind? Are they forgetting they're literally under slavery in this exact moment as a history of a nation? What is happening here? Maybe. They might be to be silly, but, but I think something more important is going on here. And I think it has to do with their argumentation. Look at what they respond. The reason why they say they don't believe they're enslaved is because they are the offspring of Abraham. They say, how can we be enslaved? We're the offspring of Abraham. That's their reason. Leading many to conclude that what the Jews are doing here is they're offering some kind of a, uh, an inward spiritual freedom that comes from their identity as the very offspring of Abraham. Something they've been inherited by the very virtue of their birth that can't be taken away from them, not even by the Romans. So what they see themselves as, even in the midst of slavery and oppression, is by God's word and then by abiding in God's word, they see them as free people, enslaved to no one and nothing. Which makes Jesus' statement really confusing to them. So they say, how is it then that you say you'll become free? Which brings us then to our second back and forth. So in verses 34 to 36, Jesus responds to their question by casting a very different vision, as I said, of freedom and slavery claiming that the Jews who think they are free indeed are currently enslaved, needing to be set free, because, as Jesus says, everyone who practices sin, anyone who does or makes sin, is a slave to sin. 
This goes back to what I said a couple of minutes ago. Uh, Jesus recasts the whole idea of slavery and freedom by explaining what the Bible systematically teaches about sin. Specifically, that every single one of us, you and I, from birth and by nature, are slaves of sin. Meaning that before we are set free by Jesus, we are not free to honor and glorify God as we ought. Rather, we are only free to obel, uh, to uh, rebel, to do the will of our father, Satan. Now, this is the consistent teaching of the New Testament for every single one of us. So you and I, for example, though we were born in the true north, strong and free, and though we have the charter of rights in, we are not free. Now, you might say, well, I've experienced the last three and a half years, Bubba. I know we ain't free. Even before, in 2019, you strong, free, true Canadians, you also were enslaved, Jesus said. Every single one of us is born into this world as slaves, slaves of sin. This is generally the way that the scriptures describe you and I before we are set free by God's grace. That's why actually in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25 to 26, Paul explains that we need to treat those who oppose us in the gospel, those who aren't Christians who oppose us, we need to treat them with gentleness for perhaps God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See that? Notice there, their will is not free to do whatever they desire. They're not free. Rather, they have been captured by Satan to do his will. This is the same thing that you might notice that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, that you and I are born into this world not as spiritually neutral or positive, but rather we're born into this world dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, right? Or as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 explains, talking about those who aren't Christians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the Bible explains that you and I are not born in this world as free, rather we are all born in this world as slaves, slaves of sin, slaves of unrighteousness, doing the will of our father, the devil. Now, this is why everyone needs Jesus. He is, the Son, the only one who can set us free, as we see in this section. And specifically, Jesus sets us free from the slavery of sin, the captivity of sin, the bondage of the flesh, the bondage of our will. And so in speaking about this slavery that Jesus is referencing here in John 8, Paul wrote in Romans 6, this is what he said. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as obedient, as slaves, uh, sorry, do you not know, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. So Jesus' word, teaching the Bible, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So it's like you're slaves of sin. Now, you're still a slave, but you're slaved now of righteousness, free to do the things that honor and glorify God. For just as you once presented your members, bodies, parts, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, Paul says, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification, your growth in godliness. Thus, the whole aim that Jesus is explaining here is that there is a radically different paradigm of freedom and slavery that he is speaking about here. There is a view of slavery and freedom that is so radical that Jesus could look at Caesar himself and call him a slave the freest man in the entire kingdom. And he would look at him and say, slave. That's wild. This is a radical redefinition of what he is talking about. 
However, into this dark news, there's really good news because though they are slaves, unable to set them free, what we see is that slaves don't remain in the house forever, but Jesus is categorically different than them. He says that he is not a slave to sin, rather he is the son. He remains forever. And he has expressly come with the authority of the Father to set captives free. That's what Jesus is saying here is as pointedly as he can, he's looking at this crowd of people and they've just said, what do you mean slaves of sin? We're not slaves, we're free. And he says, you think you're free, but you're a slave in sin and you cannot be free unless I set you free. Again, this is in, this is in just crazy, beautiful statement, just emphasizing the absolute authority given to him by the Father. And it's an audacious and it's all sweeping. He doesn't say, you can make yourself get unfree. He doesn't say, you're like an indentured servant and you can work your way out of this. He says, no, your only hope, you who are blinded by Satan to see the glory of Christ, you who are captive by Satan to do his will, you who hate God and who are unable to freely glorify him, you are slaves. You will die in your sin unless I set you free. He's the only one who can set you free. He's the only one that has authority to set you free. You can't earn being set free. He sets free according to the purposes of the Father. And immediately after this, Jesus continues in verse 37 with this wild statement towards the Jews who had believed in him. Look at that. He says, I know you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Like, this is wild. If this is one of your first times reading this through, right? Many believed in him. To those who believed in him, you're trying to kill me. That seems weird. Like, how did you get there? Like, that seems strange, right? Like, if you say you love Jesus, no one probably has looked at you and said, you probably want to kill Jesus, don't you? You're like, what? One, he's uh, risen and reigning with, Christ, with the Father there's right hand in, 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 in glory, so I can't kill him. But secondly, no, I love him, but why would I want to kill him? Jesus just looks at him here and says, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. This is wild, and the whole reason why they want to kill him, Jesus said, is his word finds no place in them. Thus, these disciples demonstrate they aren't really truly his disciples because they're not abiding, resting, and continuing his word. Rather, they hear his word, and they're seeking to kill him because his words find no place in them. And the idea here is that they're so full that no more can get in. I don't know if your kids do this. My kids love to fill water until there's no space left. Any of your kids do that? Just no space. I'm like, bro, that's going to, that's going to, that's going to, and they stop. And I'm like, oh, man, that's tight. And they can't even move it. They have to, like, drink it first, right, before they can then move it. That's the idea here is you're so full, Jesus says, that his word finds no place in you. That you're, you're all full. There's no, no place for you here. Not only that, they can't remain or persist in his word because they won't even accept it. And this, into this whole weird offspring conversation then comes the reality, the harsh reality of verse 38. Jesus says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So in this, Jesus then introduces another mystery to them. His father and their father are not the same father. Now, this would have been very confusing. I mean, what is Jesus talking about? They've just said they're the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is also part of the offspring of Abraham. He's through the line of David. Jesus has said that they are the offspring. So what is this whole conversation about their father and not my father and your father and not this other father? Like Abraham is in all of their fathers. I mean, all of us have father Abraham. Have any sons? Many sons has father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. Let's just praise the Lord, right? Like what is, what is happening? That was in my notes. I just love that song. Uh, isn't, that, isn't that wild? 
Like, what is happening here? That's why they say in verse 39, they're still looking at their bloodline as the reason why they're not slaves, but they're free. They're part of the chosen people of God. They bear the mark of the covenant in their very flesh. They have all the moral and ethical stipulations of the law. They're descendants of Abraham. What is Jesus talking about? This whole, your father and my father business, which then begins our third conversation, where Jesus said to them, if they were Abraham's children, then they would be doing the works that Abraham did. Now, this would have been a shocking statement to this Jewish crowd. This would have been tantamount to taking a dig at their lineage. This would be like Jesus saying, I know you think that's your daddy. He ain't your daddy. This would be like, this would be a big statement, right? This is kind of the same thing that Jesus actually, which might be a little bit of irony for, on John's part, uh, because Jesus' daddy, Joseph, wasn't Jesus' daddy either. So there might be a little interplay within John here. He's kind of nodding to something going on. But, but these guys, they, they completely understand exactly what Jesus is saying right after this. They get very frustrated. But just looking at this, Jesus says, okay, Abraham is your father. Then why aren't you doing the works that Abraham did? In other words, what Jesus is saying is they are living contrary to how Abraham lived. As Abraham obeyed God's voice and followed his requirements, commands, decrees, and laws, in short, he remained in God's word. In fact, we know from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed the word of God and was counted as righteousness. That, that's kind of the John 3, 16 verse of the Old Testament. What does it mean to have a faith like Abraham's? You believe the word of God and it's counted to you as righteousness. That he, though a slave to sin, in that moment became free. And all who are the children of Abraham are those not in lineage only, right? Ishmael and Isaac are, are both in the lineage, but both of them are sons of Abraham, but not both of them are true sons of Abraham. And so if Abraham did... did did this. He, he was faithful, and you claim to be his offspring. Why don't you have the faith of Abraham then? See, it's not just the bloodline that demonstrates what family someone belongs to. It's also the actions as well, and Jesus is trying to demonstrate that if Abraham really was their father, they would be acting how Abraham did, but they're not being faithful like Abraham. And at the very end of conversation, chapter, uh, conversation number three, Jesus makes a stunning statement. He says, you are doing the works your father did. Now, while this might not be abundantly clear to you and I, the Jews think that Jesus is making a dig, as I mentioned, at their physical lineage. That's why they retort back. They say, we're not born of sexual immorality. There was any kind of illicit sexual impropriety in our bloodlines. We, we know who our forefathers are. Now, yet also here, they understand what Jesus is saying. They, they seem to also understand the deeper meaning here. Basically, they're saying, if you aren't going to let us claim Abraham then as our forefather, because in your estimation, we aren't doing the works of Abraham, we at least know we have one father, even God. God is our father. We're part of the covenant community of faith. We are Israelites. Now here, more than likely, they think this would have settled the debate. That statement, God is our father, looking back to uh, the book of Exodus and how God calls Israel his firstborn, this would have been kind of like, like we're playing Uno. And I got one card left, and it's the draw four, and it's my turn. You know what I mean? Bam! I'm out, sucker. It would have been like that. But conversation four, then, Jesus brings in another conditional phrase, and it follows the same line of challenging to them that he did just a moment ago with Abraham. Look at me in verse 42. If God were your father, another conditional one, then you would love me for or because I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, remember verse 37, Jesus is saying they're seeking to kill him because his word finds no place in him. Well, well here, the, the problem isn't that Jesus is a bad communicator, and that's why they can't understand him. Like Jesus should have like practiced his sermons beforehand, or Jesus should have like gone to seminary and maybe like had some practice before he did things. No, 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 he's God in the flesh. 
And, and it's not because he is a bad communicator that they can't comprehend what he's saying. No, rather, it's because they cannot bear to hear what Jesus is saying. They despise his word. The problem is not Jesus' words. It's what's going on inside of these false disciples. They do not abide in his word. They're not being set free by it. They cannot bear it. They loathe it. So Jesus clarifies what he's been saying about their father is not that they are illegitimate children of Abraham, but rather that they are the spawn of Satan in verse 44, which I think is, was worse. Uh, it, it, it's worse than they ever thought. Like, 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 this is wild. Jesus, right, he's the light of the world who speaks truth. They are of their father, Satan, who speaks lies. Jesus does the, the father's will. They do Satan's desires. Jesus is the polar opposite of these guys. And it's crazy. It, and it's a difficult thing for them to hear, no doubt. And this is why uh, Jesus' claims are that they want to murder him. And this is why they can't stand the truth or abide in Jesus' word. It's because like Satan, their father, they hate the truth. They love the darkness and they hate the light of Christ. Jesus' words find no place in them. Thus, for 47, verse 47, the reason they don't hear Jesus' truthful words is they're not of God. Now, this is crazy because those who a few moments ago had heard Jesus' words in the temple about being the light of the world, those who would have said they believed in him and had been persuaded by his word, it's here they respond to Jesus' word exactly like the spawn of Satan always responds to the truth of God's word. Instead of agreeing with Jesus at this moment and asking to be set free from the tyranny of sin so they might respond in faith and obedience like Abraham did, Instead of agreeing with Jesus in his pronouncement of their state and crying out for mercy and respond, respond out, of, out of love towards him and mercy and kindness and humbleness, rather they respond by throwing out a racial slur towards him, calling him a Samaritan and saying that Jesus has a demon. Isn't that crazy? They go from, we believe you are the Messiah, you have a demon in like five minutes. Isn't that crazy? That is a crazy flip. Sometimes political leaders will say something in one moment, will love them, and the next minute will hate them. It's kind of like that in this moment. Right? Like, like this, is, this is wild. He, the light of the world, God in the flesh, when pointing out the enslavement that they have so they can be freed from sin's tyranny, is mocked and belittled by this crowd. And what's crazy is that Jesus, who we've seen in our study, hardly ever respond to people's questions, comments like he, we think he will. Right? People ask him a question, and then he goes over here, and you're like, where are you going? But really, he's going to the heart of the matter of the person. Here, Jesus actually responds in the fifth conversation. He responds by reminding them that he does not have a demon. He flat out just denies the charge. I love this here. Jesus is like, listen, I don't have a demon. You ever been arguing with a three-year-old? No, I have. Yep. Uh, when you're arguing with a three-year-old, they say things, and you're like, no, it's this. And they're like, no, but this over here. No, 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 but this. And they say this. You're like, it's this. All right, you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't know where the remote is. You're too little to see it. It's over there. I can see it. I know where it is. That might have happened. Um, here, they look at Jesus and they say, you have a demon. He's just very clearly, I, I don't have a demon. He's just very abruptly with them. And rather says that he honors his father. Jesus has already said that he always obeys his father, speaking the words of the father, doing the works of the father. And by refusing to respond to the Father's word to them, what they are doing is they are dishonoring Jesus. They're dishonoring Jesus, they're dishonoring the Father. Thus, in verse 50, Jesus says that he isn't seeking his own glory, he isn't promoting himself, it's, he isn't his own PR, PR firm for himself, but rather God the Father, his approval is what Jesus is after. Because Jesus knows that he is the judge between them and that the Father is on Jesus' side. 
And interestingly enough, as we examine verse 51, we notice that it's really similar to verse 31, isn't it? Look, look at verse 51. Look at verse 31. There, there are common themes in these two of abiding in or keeping Jesus' words. The words are slightly different, but they carry the exact same idea. And it's like Jesus knows that the conversation is getting close to being over, so he rounds out the conversation back to the beginning. The entire reason why he's having this conversation, why he began it in the first place, was all to reveal their bankrupt state for the very purpose that he might set them free. Because he came to seek and to save the lost, to lay down his life as our substitute, that we might be redeemed from slavery to sin and become truly sons and daughters of God and leave behind the family of Satan once and for all. And it's by our keeping Jesus' word, by abiding in it, in fact, that we demonstrate that we are truly his disciples. For it is not our own strength that keeps us abiding in and remaining. Rather, it is the spirit in us that keeps us abiding in and remaining in, demonstrating that we really have passed from death to life. Which is exactly what we learned in John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus there said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. See, there in John 5, 24, and here in John 8, 51, we see this complete revisioning of what is life and what is death. Again, bringing brand new definitions to life and death itself. Thus, those who were already in Jesus, Jesus says, have passed from death to life already. Spiritual death to spiritual life, from being children of wrath to being children of God. We experience a sweet communion with God both now and forever. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Thus, what is happening, as we see throughout the Bible, throughout, throughout our life, when we close our eyes in death, there's not a millisecond when we are separated from God or truly seeing death as non-Christians see death. For we never come under the judgment of God. For Jesus has passed through that judgment for us, and we are now in him. Thus, there is this rock-solid promise for Christians that we will never see death. Now, unquestionably, if Jesus tarries, we will all experience physical death. Yes. And in our lives, we will walk through cancer. We will walk through dementia. We will walk through Alzheimer's. We will walk through miscarriages. We will walk through Lots of things throughout our lives. Jesus is not promising here that, that you'll have no more sickness or sadness or, or things pertaining to death ever affect you anymore if you're now a Christian. No, we walk through all of those things, and we do so by faith and with hope, trusting in a kingdom that is not here but is yet to come. And what Jesus' main point here is that we won't experience judgment not a drop of judgment, because Jesus has taken the brunt, every last drop of it, drunken it to the dregs, and died in our place. So that death, the death died in the death of Christ is for all Christians. Or as my favorite theologian, John Owen, so famously wrote his book, there is a death of death in the death of Christ. Which if you can deal with old Puritan language, you should read that. It's so good. So as we saw in John 3.36, whoever believes on the Son has eternal life, meaning that it's our possession even now. And as we see in 1 John 2.17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the Jews, however, once again get infuriated by what Jesus is saying, asking, are you greater than our father Abraham? Then they get to ask their question, who do you make yourself out to be? Bring us to the sixth part of the conversation. We're almost done. Jesus explains that he's not making himself out to be anyone. He isn't promoting himself above his station. He's not a man making claims about himself to be someone great. Rather, the father, Yahweh, God himself, is the one who glorifies him, verse 54. More specifically, the one who gives a share of his glory to Jesus. Now that is wild vocabulary. 
Because as we know from the Old Testament, who does the Father share His glory with? Nobody. And yet Jesus here says that the Father shares His glory with Him. Which they don't pick up on in this moment. They're about to when He's going to make another statement and they're going to try to kill Him. But that's another claim of of, uh, claiming divinity as well. And Jesus' emphatic point at this part of the conversation is that those who will stand before him claim to know God, to have him as their father, but they don't know him at all. Jesus, however, is their opposite. He is the one who both knows the father and keeps the father's word, verse 55. The same word that we saw in verse 51 that Jesus gave about those who are true disciples, they are those who keep Jesus' words and have entered into eternal life. Well, Jesus also, get this, guards and keeps the father's word. Thus, Jesus is the true and better disciple. Thus, what we do as Christians is we imitate Jesus. He is the one who knows the Father and who obeys the Father. Now, those who are set free are set free to know the Father and obey the Father. And here at the very tail end, Jesus turns the conversation back to Abraham and calls him your father Abraham. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus has just went through pains to show them, you think Abraham's your daddy, but he's not. And now Jesus says, your father Abraham. Isn't that? It's such a funny little twist there. And, and what I think he's doing here, he's bringing the conversation back to their own identity as God's covenant people because he wants to make an explicit point. He emphatically identifies them with Abraham to declare to them that Abraham rejoiced that he would see his day. In fact, Abraham saw Jesus' day and was glad. Now, whatever illusion Jesus is referring to here, their scholars are all over the map on what they think is happening here. But whatever the illusion is that Jesus is referring to in the Old Testament, Jesus' essential argument is simply that these, the offspring of Abraham, ought to have the same hopes and joys of Abraham, who was given the ability by the Father to foresee this very day, and he apparently believed Jesus. Thus, by implication, so should they as well. To which the Jews respond in utter amazement at the silliness of this statement. They're like, you're not even 50, Jesus. You're not even 50. You've seen Abraham? What are you talking about? And here, the seventh interaction, the very last words spoken in this text, are the ones that are the most untenable of all for these Jews who had believed in Jesus, proving what he had been saying all along. They are false disciples who cannot take his word. They will not abide in his word. They cannot receive it. They are false disciples whose father is the devil. They're enslaved to sin and to doing the works of their fathers. Jesus responds to this statement by explaining what we've already seen in the prologue, namely, In the beginning, from before the foundations of the world, when nothing is formed yet, Jesus existed alongside of the Father in equality of persons. Thus, before Abraham was, before he came into existence, Jesus says, I am. Now, with those two definitive words, the Jews understood what Jesus was claiming all along. Something that might have gone over their heads earlier. Remember, uh, not last week, the week before when we were in chapter 8. Something that would have gone maybe over their heads Like, what does Jesus mean by these I am he statements from Isaiah chapter uh, 40 to 55? Now it's crystal clear. Jesus is not claiming to be the suffering servant who's simply the Messiah. He's claiming equality with God the Father to be the I am, the I am of Isaiah 40 to 55 and the I am of Exodus 3. One of the strongest claims that deity in the entire book of John is right here. And in response, they pick up stones to kill him. Now, if Jesus was just misunderstood, if they misunderstood him, Like, if he's not really claiming equality with God the Father, this would have been a great moment to clarify that. You know what I mean? Like, if you say something publicly and everyone is like, we're going to kill you. That's a great moment. No, no, no. See, I I understand. You thought I was saying this thing. That's not what I meant. I actually meant this over here. That's a great moment, right? 
to clarify what you mean? Do you know what it's in our text? None of that happened. None of that happened. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus meant exactly what he was saying. And their inability to listen and believe and remain in his word proved who their father was, the one who was a murderer from the very beginning. They picked up stones in vain to try to kill God in the flesh. And even more shockingly, they who swore, they swore that they saw and they understood things rightly, they were then not given the ability to see Jesus at all. He just vanished from before their eyes. Not because in some axe-like thing, the Lord just picked him up and moved him somewhere else, like with Philip. Not like that. No, no, rather, they who claimed they could see everything so perfectly in that moment were physically blinded from seeing the glory of Christ standing in front of them. They couldn't even see him. This isn't a Jesus hid like, like, a, like King Saul did with all the baggage. Remember like that? Saul was hiding in the baggage. It's not like that. Jesus didn't hide behind like a really big guy and get underneath his coat and just like slowly make his way out. No, he just hid himself. He who created their eyes immediately caused them to not be able to see at all. And he walked out of the temple, which is one of the saddest phrases in this entire chapter. Because Jesus had come to his own, his own covenant people, declaring who he was as God in their midst. He, the fulfillment of Psalm 110, had come Yet they refused to abide in his word, and they couldn't even bear his words. They wanted to kill him, proving they were not truly his disciples. They did not have the faith of Abraham. They did not have God as their father. Rather, their actions proved that their father was Satan, and their will was bent towards accomplishing his desires. They were slaves to sin. Because of that, they were liars and murderers. Thus, this crowd of Jews are in a precarious spot, because unless the Son sets them free, they will be enslaved to sin for forever never knowing life, and then they will die and enter into judgment for their rebellion against God, which is what the Bible explains is not only true of them, but of true of every single one of us as well. See, so the reality is that we are like this crowd, all of us, without God as our Father, enslaved to sin, without hope, unless Jesus intervenes and sets us free. That's why I said at the beginning of our time together, this whole text is meant to cause you and I to pause and examine our lives and to respond to God through this text. And, and while there might be a multitude of different responses, as we wrap up, I'm going to give you three quick ones. Three quick ones, and then we're going to be over. Now, for some of you, my, my prayer is that, this first response, is that, is that a miracle took place in your heart as we looked at this text today. That, that instead of just blindly assuming that you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, I'm praying that some of you have been graciously given eyes to see for the very first time that you aren't. I'm praying that you might have walked in here thinking you're a child of God already, but as we examine the text, you were given eyes to see that you actually haven't been set free from sin. If you were going to classify your life right now, you'd say it's not marked by any freedom of any sin ever. In fact, I don't know if I've ever been free from any sin in my life. For that would be a great cause for you to pause and consider whether you are in Christ or not. Scripturally, you have a great basis to say that you are not. I mean, if you're honest, you would rather say that your life is the epitome of what does it mean to be a slave to sin, and you feel that. And while you haven't murdered anyone, you do have bubbling in your heart of just, just anger towards others and despise them. And a liar, you're a liar. 
lie about lots of things. You cover things up. You want people to think better of you than you are. In fact, many of us, if we were honest, our life is marked by anger, love of money, carrying out the passions of the body and the mind, proving that many of us are children of wrath, not children of God. So while you walked in here thinking that you're a Christian, the longer the sermon went on, you were more and more convinced by the Spirit's work in you that you actually are a slave to sin. However, you see the response of these of these disciples, and you don't want that to be your response. You don't want to reject Jesus. Rather, by God's grace, you have this strange longing and desire in your heart to be set free from sin. My prayer now is that even in this moment, you might turn in your heart towards Jesus and ask him to save you. Hearing the bad news that you, your father is the devil, that you are enslaved to sin, is meant to lead to the good news of you don't have to stay that way. Jesus wants to free you even now, from the power of sin, so that you will have eternal life and never taste death, never taste a drop of God's judgment against you. Friend, you have been a false disciple, but Jesus' gracious words have been meant to expose your fraud and to call you to come to him and to believe in him as God in the flesh. Will you come to him? Others of you, others of you might not know where you stand with Jesus in this moment. You may not know whether you're truly a disciple or a false one. In your life, you would say you've had some spiritual moments. There have been some warmth in your heart towards the gospel and towards the words of Jesus. But if you're honest, there are a lot of words that Jesus has spoken. There's a lot of what the Bible teaches on various topics that you disagree with, that you refuse to submit to because you're trying to satisfy some sinful craving or longing in your heart. And the Bible speaks to that situation, but you don't want to hear it. You can't bear what the Bible says. Rather, you have a growing disdain inside of yourself for God's word. And instead of trusting in Jesus' words and treasuring them and submitting to them, you twist them. Excusing your sin because you don't want to submit to God's word. Even now, there might be an internal craving in you to do what you want to do and to reject the Bible's clear teaching. And what I want to warn you on is that if that's you in this moment or if that's you a year from now or 10 years from now, that you are playing with a loaded gun. And what you do next is of supreme importance for your soul that you don't make a shipwreck of your faith. You are in treacherous waters. And your real allegiance, your real family connection, either with God or with Satan, is about to be revealed in what you do. And I pray that your faith might prove true and genuine as we see in Hebrews 6 and 7. That you might return back to your first love and submit yourself to his word, demonstrating that the Father really is your Father. But I want to warn you that if you don't, if you don't abide in Jesus' words, if you don't keep his commands, then you ought not to have any confidence at all that you have ever been set free from the slavery of sin. You might be a false disciple. And yet there's still hope for you. For Jesus is ready and willing to forgive you and welcome you and pardon you if you will come and submit to him. Still others of you, the overwhelming majority of you, I pray that as we walk through this text today and examine the words of Jesus, that the Spirit actually brought you confidence. Not in yourself and in your spotless ability to abide in Jesus' words, but rather I pray you've been given confidence in Jesus that you've been reminded of how you've been set free from the enslavement of sin by the gracious work of Jesus alone. 
and that you've been overwhelmed at thinking about who you once were, remembering you once were a child of wrath, destined to spend eternity future, suffering under the righteous judgment of God against your sin. You were without God and without hope in this world, but God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in saved love, saved you, and he adopted you into his family. He gave you faith to believe upon Jesus and the strength to exercise that faith upon him. He is the one who along the way has given you victory over sin. And while you're not perfect, you also aren't who who you once were. And you are not who you once will be in the future. But by grace, by the grace of God, you are what you are. And to you, my brother and sister in Christ, I would commend to you the words of Jesus. Abide in his word. Remain in it all the days of your life, which you will do by the grace of God. Get into his word until it gets into you. Put to death your sin. Rejoice that you will never see death, for you've already passed from death to life. So let's pray and then sing a bit in response. So God, we thank you for your great kindness. We thank you for the love that you've given us in and through Jesus. I pray that as we even now consider our own hearts and our own souls, we consider where we're at with you, God, that you do a work in our lives. God, there are those in our midst who are false disciples who today have been revealed that through your spirit, in your word, and I pray, God, you would bring them to repentance and faith, true, genuine faith. They would submit to Jesus' words, they would repent of their sin, turn away from it, believe upon Jesus as their God, King, and Savior who's come to seek and to save them. For others, those who are teetering, those who are seeing your clear commands in Scripture but refuse to submit to it, I, I pray for them that you would use this either to demonstrate they're a false disciple who needs to repent of sin and trust in you, or they're a true disciple by what they do in submitting to your word and not to what their desires are. And I pray as well for the majority of my brothers and sisters that they would have just great assurance. I pray that others around them would also help just speak words of encouragement into them, seeing, seeing how they aren't who they once were. And though they're not who they once will be into the future, you, by grace, are working in them. And so, God, may we be a, a church who comes alongside of one another to, to be and to give just great assurances as we see your spirit at work in and through our lives, and that we may be quick to encourage one another in that, how we see the spirit at work in one another. And God, we're thankful for the great kindness of your word, that you don't leave us as false disciples, but confront us pointing out the bleak reality of who we are and the necessity of who you are. May we trust in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.